Hey folks and welcome to another episode of PodCraft. This is the show about everything podcasting, from equipment to interview skills and everything in between. I'm Colin Gray, your usual host, and this time around we've got an interview with another experienced podcaster, but also very experienced in an area I've been wanting to cover for quite a while now. Now one of the biggest questions we often get are around the you know, the legalities of podcasting, of creating content, of put it out there. And I've been trying to chase down uh, somebody who knows something about this, somebody with some expertise, and I happened to come across a fine chap named Gordon Firemark. How are you doing, Gordon? I'm very good. Thank you, Colin. I don't think I've ever been described as a fine chap before. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be the first. Uh, so, Gordon, you're an entertainment lawyer, is that right? Do you mean tell me, what, what exactly does the, the day-to-day of an entertainment lawyer look like? Well, my world is uh, first of all that you know there are two kinds of lawyers here in the states. We we don't make the distinction between solicitors and barristers the mm-hmm. way some people in the in the Commonwealth nations do. But um, we uh, uh, so so there are litigators and <clears throat> the courtroom lawyers, and then the, those of us that do the transactional. We're all called attorneys or lawyers, and so that's that. I am on the transactional side, so I negotiate contracts, I make deals, I. Uh, help clients with uh, starting up their companies and registering their trademarks and protecting their intellectual property like copyrights and all of the deals, contracts and and uh, negotiations that go on in, in those areas um, and advising them, you know, on, on how to stay out of trouble so they don't wind up in the courtroom. Excellent. Good stuff. Yeah, well, so I've been wanting to talk to somebody like yourself for a while because there's quite a few um, little questions that come up often in podcasting and general content creation, actually, uh, around how you put your stuff out there. And I think the first thing I wanted to ask was around how you do this internationally. So obviously I'm in the UK, you're in the US, and Mm -hmm. we've got lots of people listening around the world. So uh, this is, I suppose, every question during this, our chat here will be in the context of people who could live anywhere, actually, but they are broadcasting internationally. So a good proportion, a bigger proportion of our audience is US-based than UK-based, even though we're a UK-based company. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what are the sort of first things you think you have to think about in terms of putting your content out there um, and thinking about is there anything any sort of first steps you think when it's to keep on the right side of the law when it comes to international broadcasting well I, you know I, most of the principles that we'll talk about are universal or mm. near universal you know the, the first one that comes to mind is copyright and, mm. and really I, I sort of categorize um, uh, all of this under you know three or four categories the first mm. is you know treat it like a business even if you're a hobbyist podcaster what you're doing is making media and distributing it. And that, that is going to look to the outside world as though it's a business, whether you're monetizing or not. And so be businesslike about things. Use contracts and, um, and be mindful of your property and of property of others. So um, the property of others part is, is the first major point of concern, I would say. Mm-hmm. And that is when you use someone else's literary or musical or cinematic material, whatever, you are – um, probably infringing on someone else's copyright. Copyright law, fairly universally, we have a, in an international treaty that 186 countries, I believe it is, are are signed to this Berne Convention on Copyright Law. Um, and so most of the principles are very much the same. When you create a work of original authorship, uh, you own a copyright in that, and that copyright gives the owner 
the exclusive right to make copies, to distribute those copies, to perform the work in public or display it if it's that kind of work, and to make derivative works, that is to to elaborate and adapt and turn it into something else. Um, and uh, yeah, so th- those are the basic principles that um, the owner of the copyright has the right to do that and to allow others. So if you're incorporating somebody else's stuff, you're stepping on one of those rights if you don't have permission. Now, there are some exceptions and things, but but that's the general rule. And vice versa, when you create work, you own it and you're entitled to those same protections. Great. So with, I mean, with uh, written work, you often see the copyright notice at the bottom of a web page, say. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that, that's a question I've always had, is that necessary or do you own the copyright as standard? And how does that apply to audio work? So the notice of copyright is, not a requirement, at least under U.S. law and most uh, most of the um, other countries, I believe, you're not required to put a notice on it. You're not required to make a registration. Here in the U.S., registration is required before a lawsuit can be commenced, but you can do that the day before you file the suit. There are some advantages to registering early, but um, uh, but no. So the, so the the presence or absence of a copyright notice really only goes to whether somebody might be considered an innocent infringer, uh, and that can uh, mitigate some of the damage, the amount of money that, that would be on the hook for uh, in that <laughs> situation. Yeah. But basically, the copyright exists from the moment of inception without. Right. So presumably uh, podcast material, there's no need to say it. It's just it automatically owns, it's owned by you. Uh, you can prove it's yours by being your voice, I guess. Is that is that how it works? Pretty much. Yeah. You know, I mean, and obviously if you've got, transaction records of when you uploaded the file to the hosting company, those kinds of things will be evidence in the case proving that you uh, own something. If you're, you know, copying from a a major film, then people will know if you're copying from a a written work, then it would presumably it was published somewhere. That's how you got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, those kinds. Perfect. So there's two things related to that I wanted to delve into then. You've got two uses of material, I think, that you often hear in podcasts and people want to do, uh, one of which is music uh, and one of which is, you know, uh, yeah, stuff like film clips or um, from other people's podcasts. So the first one there, I think, that would be good to delve into is the, the music side of things because everyone, well, not everyone, but a lot of people want to have theme music in their shows. You get libraries out there which are copyright free and uh, supposedly royalty free, supposedly free entirely cost wise to use. You get other libraries that you can buy the royalties or the rights to use a bit of music. Now, I've often been a little bit confused about the terminology around this. So what are we looking for in the first place for the terminology to say that means that we can use a bit of music for free cost wise or if we're buying it to make sure we're getting the right to use that in our show forever? Yeah. So, you know, I don't think any of the music that we're talking about, there, there is music that is copyright free. That is very old musical composition, uh, okay. yep. are, you know, not no longer protected under copyright law, sure. the public domain, but anything else is going to have a copyright. Mm. It's a question of whether the owner has granted you or the public generally the right to use it. So, um, so royalty free music libraries basically mm. are in the business of, of selling for a one-time fee. This is general uh, principles. You know, you, you buy it once and you can use it over and over again. Mm-hmm. There are there are scenarios also where you buy it once and for each use you have to pay a royalty, and that's just a, a standard, you know, royalty deal. Um, so you you do need to be careful when when licensing music uh, to understand what you're buying. If the library 
calls itself royalty free, you should you should be able to rely on that. But double check to make sure that um, uh, that they are in fact granting the rights for. For example, if you're using it as your show intro, that may be different from the the kind of use they normally expect. You know, it's just going to be a bed under one little scene in a movie or something like that. So okay. make sure it's appropriate for you. There are free music sources, usually uh, under what we call the Creative Commons licensing scenario, which basically is the owners are saying, as long as you give me attribution and aren't using it for commercial purposes, you can use this music. You know, just don't change it. There are variations on that. And that's uh, creativecommons.org is the uh, the organization that sort of manages the creation of those licenses but basically by putting that notice on a work that the owner is saying go ahead and use this here are the conditions mm -hmm. okay usually yeah, yeah so th so you, you're absolutely right there i got my terminology wrong didn't it? it's not copyright free it's royalty free we're looking for you buy a roy royalty free are you sorry you license a royalty free track i'll try and use the right terminology mm -hmm. uh, you license a royalty free track but you're saying as well that there are often different types of licenses um one that might say you can only use it as a bed under one section one that might say you can use it unlimited what are there kind of common uh, types of licenses out there well when i say there's different types of licenses what i'm what i'm really saying is that each um, royalty-free music library is going to have slight variations in the conditions on their licenses. So, you know, they, and they may have a very low price license for the one-time kind of use and a different price for the, the repeated use, you know, if you're using it as a show open or something like that. Sure. Right. Just, you just make, make sure you're buying what you think you're buying and that yeah. ought to be explicitly stated yeah so this is this is a case of it's not like the, the terms and conditions you just scroll right through don't even look at when you're signing up for services and tick this is a case where we actually should be reading the the terms really here and most of the libraries actually have a you know an explanation of the different if they have multiple classes of licenses they'll explain what does the basic license what does the platinum license include and so on yeah and just you know just do your homework. Don't don't uh, dive in blindly. So yeah, right. Don't don't just scroll past and say yes, I read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. So what about uh, that, that's kind of the the royalty free music libraries? They're they're selling stuff for low cost, maybe ten dollars, thirty dollars, fifty dollars, and and you get a license for that track. But commercial music is obviously a different proposition entirely. Is it is it possible? Is it feasible? Is it um, you know? It, cost effective to use commercial licensing for podcasters how would we go about that well you know it can be but it, there are there are scenarios where it can be very very expensive if you want to use a beatles or a rolling stone song you're going to pay a heavy price mm -hmm. for doing so but there there are bits of music out there that are you know much more affordable and accessible and and sometimes the owners are uh, are willing to let it go for a low price i know there's a there's a very prolific podcaster by the name of Dan Miller who who uses, um, oh, I've forgotten what song it is now, but he you know decided that he wanted to use this song and he reached out to the record label and the music publisher and that's something we'll talk about is there's two copyrights to think about. Okay, uh, but but he reached out and he offered them I don't know he asked them for a license and suggested a hundred dollars a year. For, for and it's his show opening song. Sure. It's a taking care of business. That's the song, and. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they've, they've allowed him to do it, I think for a hundred dollars a year. Oh, and excellent. You know, so you, you know, don't be, don't be afraid to ask the worst they can say is no. Um, and you might be surprised at how affordable things are. <laughs> is that the normal routine then actually contacting the artist directly or how, how would you normally start that process? Well, the artists don't generally retain ownership of the work 
quite in the way that that suggests. So, you know, generally speaking, let's talk about the two copyrights sure. first and then yeah. I'll explain. So when a songwriter sits down and writes a song, these, he's, he or she has created a work of authorship. So there's a copyright in the composition. Compositions are generally managed or administered by um, a music publishing company, which has basically bought the song from the songwriter in exchange for paying them some percentage of the revenues that, the, that are generated from the song. Very seems very straightforward. Sure. It's actually yeah. a tremendously complex business. But <laughs> um, then the uh, when that song is recorded by a recording artist, there's a second creative work that's been created, the recording. And that is owned usually by the record company that paid for the recording to happen and, and is distributing the record. So when you use a recorded piece of music, you have to get permission for both the composition and the recording, which are both being incorporated in your episode or your whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you only need that if you're using a recorded composition. If you decide that you're going to hire a, a band or a, a musician to play that piece of music and make your own recording, then obviously you only need the composition rights. So. So even if you were to, uh, yeah, play it yourself, grab a guitar and as a play a song yourself, even if it was just a riff from the song, that counts as something you should be getting clearance from the artist for then. Well, right now you mentioned just a riff and mm -hmm. that's one of the little exceptional important okay. exceptions that exists, at uh -huh. least in the United States. And, uh, I believe the UK has a similar principle, but so let's talk about this. It's called fair use yes. in the U S and fair dealing in some other countries, okay. Canada. Okay. So in the U S this concept of fair use arose because we also, we have, you know, we have copyright law, which is a restriction on the kinds of things you can do speech, right? Free speech is covered by our first amendment. <laughs> so we, there's an inherent conflict. Mm -hmm. You have mm -hmm. free speech, except this isn't free. <laughs> so <Yeah. clears throat> the courts had to come up with a, a system to address that conflict. And they developed this, this uh, doctrine called fair use that takes a look at four factors of, of, um, of the use in question and decides, is it more, is it, does it come down more on the free speech side or more on the let's protect the owner side? And, uh, and that's a determination that's made on an individual case-by-case -case basis. Now, I, my understanding is that the doctrines of uh, fair dealing are very similar, but you don't have a First Amendment in quite the same way you don't have free you do have free speech but you don't have the same uh degree of uh, constitutional guarantee as yes. we do so um that's an area where you have to check a little bit um if you're located if you're based in uh, the country a different country yeah, of, yeah. the u.s uh, just check the local yeah so to take you the u.s as an example then is there and i've heard there's <laughs> there's a bit of a gray area here but is there is there a uh, criteria around fair use like you can use 10% of a song 20% of a song so there is no rule of thumb and the reason behind that is that it's possible to take the substance of the song by only taking a couple of measures mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. to use a Beethoven example when you hear bum 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 yeah you know which piece that's four notes yeah yeah <laughs> well four <laughs> so uh, we've taken the meat of the of the piece without taking very much quantity wise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's, so there's the amount and substantiality of the portion taken is one of the four factors that we have to consider yeah. the nature yeah. of the original, the market impact, 
and um, and the nature of the use in question, the the uh, the purpose and character of the use. So, you know, if we're using it for educational or for commentary and criticism, that's much more likely to favor fair use than um, you know we're using it in a, as a commercial jingle or something yeah, like. Yeah, that. yeah. A show open is a little different than just a little piece of music used in the in the interstitial to transition from one segment to another. Yes. You know, see. So, we end up looking at all four of these factors and the totality of the circumstances and how much does the whole, how much has the work been transformed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. into a new artwork basically. And I, you know, most podcast uses aren't going to cross over that transformative side. So a tiny little snippet, probably okay. Yeah. The more you, you know, the more you use the, the less likely. And the more regular as well. I don't, it yeah. seems like a, a criteria for it too. But from what you're saying, we can never be a hundred percent sure in these cases, is that right? So, yes. So, fair use is is a uh, like I said, it's an, a case by case analysis. Yeah, so, yeah. and unfortunately, by the time you get to really have the argument about whether something is a fair use, it's because you've used it and the owner has sued you, and you've now paid thousands and thousands of dollars to lawyers to defend yes. you in court. Um, you know, a lot of owners will sort of acknowledge that it could be fair use if it's a very minor kind of a thing. Yeah, um, yeah. They still have to do their due diligence and contact you and make sure you yes. understand that you used it. So yeah. it's a lot of hassle. I, I would yeah. recommend using loyalty-free or, or uh, you know, easily licensed material and, yeah. and don't rely on this fair use too much. Yeah, yeah. So applying that to TV and film as well, quite a lot of people want to include a little clip from a TV show, a film show. Uh, is that basically the same principle? Is it okay to include like 30 seconds or a minute of a film? It is the same principle. If you're discussing the film and criticizing or discussing the filmmakers and, mm-hmm. and you know, doing an analysis of something, I think that you know, on that purpose and character of the use factor that weighs in favor of fair use. Again, if you're just doing it for comedy's sake or for fun, um, you know, or do you remember that time when Han Solo said X, Y, Z, that's probably not as much a fair use. And, and again, the amount and substantiality portion is important. Also, you can take, an, you know, sort of the most recognizable mediest chunk of a movie mm-hmm. in just a sentence. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, it could, way in favor of the owner so again yeah same analysis you got to be you know diligent about this the good news is when you're taking a small clip of a movie you're generally taking 30 seconds or less of something two hours long yes whereas with a song you're taking 30 seconds of three minutes long yeah exactly percentage wise much smaller okay no that's interesting yeah i was kind of i i've heard there's no solid answer to this but that actually gives some really good criteria at least you can you can judge it yourself around it. So that's really useful. Thanks. With uh, the understanding that you're taking some risk if you use something without, without yes. permission. You know, yeah. the worst, probably the worst case scenario is that you get a takedown notice and your episode has to go into the ash heap, yeah. <laughs> which is no fun for anybody. But yes. um, that'll be usually the first step, at least under the uh, under the U.S. law, the DMCA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, on that, I mean – is that actually the worst case scenario or could you be uh, fined or anything like that for, for doing it? Well, yes, of course. The owner could, could always sue for copyright infringement. Uh-huh. And uh, here in the States, that could you know, be mean any, anywhere from seven hundred fifty to $150,000 right. in damages. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the practical matter is that, you know, the owner has to incur some fees and expenses in bringing that lawsuit and has to see that there are actually some damages to justify yeah. it. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, so you so typically getting it taken down is the objective. Yeah. That's the punishment. Yeah. <laughs> and we have yeah. a very easy mechanism for that. And that's bad enough if you've spent hours creating a bit of content. And I mean, that's a, a pretty bad well, result a, anyway. So, yeah. and, and some of the podcast hosts might adopt the three strikes policy that you like YouTube does, where if you get caught three times, then they start to disable your account or refuse you access to things. Indeed, and, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just finish off on the music side of things. Mm-hmm. For if we were to um, try and get hold of some commercial music, license that. I believe I've heard in the past that there are sort of more central organisations that manage a lot of different copyrights. Is that the case, or am I mistaken there? You know, here in the states, these kinds of license there is no centralised. Uh, agency for a license that would cover everything a podcaster okay. sure. it's tricky because podcasting is we both stream live sometimes stream live sometimes mm-hmm. stream from a web-based player but also it's a download to people's devices mm-hmm. so there's several different kinds of use going on and um so that's that but i think what you're talking about are the organizations called performance rights organizations mm-hmm. Here in the U.S., those are ASCAP and BMI and CSAC. In Canada, it's SOCAN. In the U.K., I think it's PRS is the name of it. Yeah, that sounds right, yeah. Um, and in different countries, I believe there are some um, mechanism for these kinds of things. And that's the other trick of this is that because podcasting is a global medium, you theoretically have to have licenses that cover every territory that yeah. your listeners are in. <laughs> so it's really tricky. And so going directly to the owners is most often the, the way to accomplish that because they can always sort of bypass the, the, yeah. the societies. Yes. Um, Okay, no, that makes sense. That's great. Okay, I think that covers pretty much everything they need to know about music. I hope that gives um, listeners a good idea of how they could go about that and a bit of a clearer view about the fair use question as well. So that's great. I think the other part that I wanted to go on to was around protecting our own work. So we've talked about about the copyright aspect. So we have that copyright automatically. That's great. What about The other two aspects of it that I wanted to ask you about was, firstly, what about if we have somebody else involved in our material? So right now I'm interviewing yourself. This is something between the two of us. How does that work? Is that is that joint owned? And should I be thinking about giving people a contract? You mentioned contracts earlier. Should I be thinking about giving people contracts before I get them on my show? I say to that, yes. Um, (laughs) In fact, I'm a bit of an evangelist on the subject. Use a release from... Well, use a release with every guest on your show. Now, um, we didn't, you and I did not do a a written release before we started the show. I'm happy to sign one if that's what you want, but I will say right now, I'm hereby granting you the permission to use this recording and this interview in perpetuity throughout the universe, uh, (laughs) in all media now known and hereafter devised. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. First time I've had that. (laughs) Generally that is, that is, uh, a workable solution is to get them to acknowledge something like that on the show or or in a recording. Mm -hmm. But I do advocate using a a written release and I have actually created a a downloadable release that anybody can have for free. It's at uh, uh, podcastrelease.com and uh, you can download this and, you know, use it adapted for your own purposes and so on. It is a little bit challenging to get your guests to sign something in advance, especially, you know, it's a legal document and so on. So some people have adapted it and made it a web form that they, you know, click and type their name and that 
that generally is an acceptable approach also. Hmm. But it's definitely worthwhile because, uh, well, here's a, here's a case of, in point. Uh, a client of mine last year was contacted by, she was on episode 100 and 200 something of, of her show, uh, a guest that was on episode five of the show, saying, I don't like the direction your show has gone in. You're taking a, an opinion that I'm co- that's contrary to my beliefs. So I want that episode taken down and no references to me on your website. Hmm. And she hadn't gotten assigned release. So she was, you know, she, she resisted and she said, well, I'm going to explain why. And the woman didn't want any explanations, no reference to me whatsoever. Yeah, sure. So, uh, the, the lady ended up suing the, the, the show and, um, they settled, but, uh, you know, that was an expensive adventure yeah, <laughs> that you can avoid it with one page document. Yeah. So, well, that's great. Thank you for giving us the link to that. So I'll put that in the show notes if anybody wants to go and download that. Podcastrelease.com. I think um, it's something that came up within our membership, actually. One of our members was asking about it. We had a conversation back and forth and I've used it for video in the past, funnily enough, yeah. running events. So videoing well, an event and stuff like that, you have participants yeah. and... Photographers use model releases. Yeah. Videographers use video, you know, so why shouldn't we recording our shows do the same? Exactly. Yeah. I think it's just because it's kind of podcasting has grown up around the concept of interviews and people just haven't done it in the past, have they? So, but now that the medium's becoming more professional, more grown up, more, it's just, yeah, it maybe makes sense that we start to incorporate this a lot more. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So last one was around... Uh, trademarks actually I, so you talked earlier on about registering registering your trademarks about your IP that type of thing would you recommend uh, what stage does a podcaster have to get to before you would recommend actually investing in trademark protection you know trademark protection um, this is an area that does vary a bit from nation to nation we mm-hmm. do also have an international treaty on trademarks but mm-hmm. the process of registration is different um, from country to country and and region to region so um, so that's something you want to check with locally a, a bit, but, um, basically if your if your show title is distinctive and becomes identified with you as a brand, then it's worth protecting. Now, a lot of shows like my own entertainment law update, it's a very descriptive, um, title. And so descriptive here in the U S anyway, I don't know what it is everywhere, but I believe it's the same uh, descriptiveness is on the wrong side of the registrability line. Mm-hmm. It has to be distinctive enough to stand out. Now over time, a very descriptive term can become distinctive by virtue of uh, achieving a sort of secondary meaning in the mind of the public. So that's what you're going for. If you're using a descriptive term. Now, if you're, if you're, I mean like your show is, um, podcraft. It's a, it's a coined word, so it's more on the distinctive side, but it's also suggestive of what you're talking about, um, unless it's about a building pods, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I have some question about whether it would go through easily. It probably would, and we would, you know, register it and, and um, defend on the basis that it's a, a coined phrase and therefore fairly distinctive. But... Um, uh, or and if it has nothing to do with what your show is about, you know the the heebie-jeebie show <laughs> or yes. something. Like that, yeah, yeah. You probably could get a registration pretty easily. So yeah. descriptiveness is the challenge. So right. once you've sort of attained, you know, I'd say 100 episodes is a pretty good indication that you've achieved some distinctiveness. Yeah. Uh, assuming you've got downloads to prove it too. You know? Yeah, yeah. And what would you say the reasons would be behind somebody taking that step? Then I mean, what what's the thinking or the benefits of it? 
Well, you don't want somebody else coming into the marketplace with a, a confusingly similar um, uh, title mm -hmm. for another show, whether it's in a, the same or a different medium. Let's say somebody wanted to make a television program called PodCraft, and mm -hmm. it's teaching how to do podcasting by television. Um, you would have a problem with that, I presume. Indeed. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so that would be a, a valid reason to want to register a trademark to avoid – because you know media is all going to fall probably under the same – class of goods or services yeah, yeah. somebody wants to create chewing gum called podcraft you're not going to be able to stop them right so it's by category as well yeah yeah in okay. the same you know, again the marketplace and the consumer yeah. and that would allow me to make a legal challenge similar to the takedown notice i suppose take down your business or your tv show or whatever it is that's named similarly yeah. and does yeah yeah there isn't such a streamlined mechanism in the trademark space but um usually a, a strong letter from a lawyer what we call a nasty gram yes <laughs> will, uh, right will <laughs> Put them on notice and warn them that they better stop. And hopefully, you catch it early enough that they haven't made a, con, you know, conspicuous investment in, yeah. uh, in the thing. So. Yeah, yeah. I believe there's a so there's difference. There's a difference between registered trademark and a trademark. Is that right? Can you explain the difference? Well, a registered trade here in the U.S. The, the little R in a circle symbol mm -hmm. indicates that the trademark has been registered with the federal government, mm -hmm. and you have the sort of fullest protection under the law uh, available. Mm -hmm. Um, trademark similar to copyright is something that you acquire the rights from using the mark. Mm -hmm. Once you put it out there in commerce, you own, uh, you have a right to prevent others, um, in the same marketplace from competing with you unfairly. And, um, both state and federal statute allow for, you know, provide for, uh, some, some protection there. But the registration is a, a worthwhile added step to get you that full, full protection. And uh, I believe similar in, in other countries that um, there is a sort of common law sense of, of what's permissible. And, and, um, and uh, I don't, again, you don't have to put a symbol on it, although putting mm. a T symbol on something is a good way of telling people, hey, I'm using this as my brand, so stay away. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel like a lot of this is actually just, it's prevention, isn't it? As opposed yeah. to, yeah. Just letting people know, like you say. Okay. Locks on the doors of your home because you don't want people coming in and looking at your stuff or taking yeah. it. Yeah. Same thing with these. Yes, perfect. Okay, that's great. I, you mentioned at the start, so just to, just to tie it up, you mentioned at the very start around contracts. Are there any other types of contracts that you recommend we have when we're in the world of podcasting or content creation? We've talked about the release, obviously. Is there anything else to think about? Well, if you have co-hosts, mm -hmm. um, where you're the same people on the show every, every episode, mm -hmm. I think it's important to uh, have a, some kind of a contract between the co-hosts and or, and or the producer of the show to indicate who owns the show and what the various rights and responsibilities are so that, you know, in the unfortunate event that someone isn't pulling their weight, mm. they can be dismissed and the show goes on or not. If you're the one who's not, you know, you're the owner. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and also what happens if there's monetization when revenue starts coming in, who gets what, who owns it and, and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think the host agreement is very important. Uh, if you have sponsorships, then it's important to have that relationship in writing. Mm -hmm. So the expectations are laid out as well as the uh, timing of payments and those kinds of things, just in case things yep. don't go so smoothly. Indeed. Um, beyond that, 
not much call for again there may be certain special situations where contracts are called for but mm-hmm. those are pretty obvious perfect yeah no that's really that's really useful to know and you would just go to a local uh well i was about to say solicitor uh, or lawyer in the u.s uh they would draw something out for you yeah I, there aren't too many forms like this on the internet mm-hmm. um and, and you know, <laughs> I'm in the business of making these kinds of forms, yes. so uh, these kinds of documents. So I'm always happy to help out. And uh, um, you know, if you do need a solicitor in your local uh, area, um, and you need a starting point, you can start with me and then run it by someone local for, uh, for the adapt- adaptation. Indeed. Well, good segue through to the end, Gordon. So uh, just to let you know, if you're out there listening, Gordon does a show called Entertainment Law Update, which is a monthly show about uh, his industry, about uh, everything around the entertainment law area. Uh, I'm sure it's a good listen. I'm going to go and have a wee listen after this. I think there's uh, there's tons in there I can uh, pick up, I'm sure, related to what we're doing. So go along and have a listen to there, um, certainly uh, as soon as you can. But also, yeah, if you have any questions about contracts, you want to look at getting something and drawn up then i'm sure gordon's your man uh where would people get in touch with you gordon well you can always find me on firemark.com that's the best and easiest way to do it i'll also tell you i have a, a an ebook called the podcast blog and new media producers legal survival guide oh. it's available at uh, so that's really you know the st- starting point rather than hiring a lawyer you may want to just pick my book yes uh, and that is at uh, podcastlawbook.com Perfect. And that'll give everyone a good idea of where to begin with um, with all of this, all the questions they should be asking. I think that's the trouble. We Sometimes we just don't know. We don't know what we don't know in this case. So a book like that sounds like a great start. So is that available? Is that where is, is that available on Amazon uh, elsewhere? Well, it's an ebook, so it's a download and it's Perfect. available at podcastlawbook.com. You can actually, you can actually get it there. Perfect. From Amazon or maybe it's lulu.com excellent okay that's perfect well thanks very much for your time gordon it's been really useful it's answered a whole bunch of questions that i've had for the last little while so again thanks for joining us um and i hope you uh, have continued success with your own show well thank you it's been a genuine pleasure great thank you very much talk to you soon